pray with me. Father in heaven, we just thank you um, for who you are, that you're a God who is good, a God who loves us, that you're for us, that you um, are a God who provides and just is so present and active in our lives. Um, The fact that we're here this morning is not a coincidence, it's not a routine, a tradition, it is is being um, appointed by you. You've brought us here together for a purpose. Uh, And Father, we pray that as we hear your word preached, as we listen to your voice um, by your spirit, that you will just move within us in a way which excites us, motivates us, challenges us, brings us to a point of response, um, whether that be praise and worship or action to go and proclaim this gospel that you've given us. I just pray that you would just be with us now, be with our kids as they hear your word taught as well. Um, and really uh, minister and speak to us today um, for your glory, we pray. Amen. 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 Um, so, yeah, so this morning, um, Neil's done me a, a solid and given me two chapters to preach through, um, which, is, which is okay, because what I find about this book, um, which I've kind of read and reread and reread and listened to, be spoken about as well, is it's just a great narrative. The story kind of flows really, really well. So, for those that don't know, um, I am a teacher. So when I teach my English lessons, it's not a lesson, by the way, um, but when I teach my English lessons, what I love to do is immerse the children in a, in a story. Um, because I find that when you can visualize the words on a page, you can really track that really, really well. So and as, as any good teacher does, I want you to do the lion's share of the work this morning. Um, so what I would like to do is, is really kind of be in, be in the word. What, what I plan to do is to go through the, the recap of what we've looked at so far, kind of retell that story, and then go through chapter five and chapter six, as the narrative would have us, um, and kind of pick out uh, the key points. So be looking through, follow it in your Bible. I am gonna read from the ESV um, initially. Um, so if you don't have one of these Bibles, please, uh, grab one um, and as well if you don't own an ESV Bible and you want to take one of these away then I'm sure that would be okay wouldn't it um, yeah you can do that as well so just to, just to kind of give a brief background and I know we've had this story the last few weeks it's really helpful to really grasp a bit of context um, so where this story is is kind of in the the historical account uh, is around a hundred years um, after the Jewish people have been taken into exile. So there were foreigners in the land uh, in Babylon around 470 BC. Now, at this time of Esther, the Babylonians have been defeated by the Persians, okay? Which means that's why now you've got this little Jewish community that were formed in, in Persia and in the capital in a place called Susa. And they were in or under the rule of King Ahasuerus, And this is the, um, the king at the time. So that's kind of like where we find ourselves. Now, what I want to do very, very briefly, as I'm sure we, we can kind of recall from our time over the last few weeks, is just remember some of the characters, the key characters in this narrative so far, because they're going to be really, really key in helping us understand um, kind of God's movement and God's action in, in these, these two chapters. And again, as I say, when I, when I teach uh, English to the children and go through any level of grammar or uh, punctuate or whatever it might be, comprehension, always do uh, character descriptions because they're really helpful to get to get a bit of depth and understanding uh, to the story. So, of course, we know the first character, the key guy, is King Ahasuerus. So we know he's a powerful king. He's a king who, for want of a better phrase, is, is, is in love with himself. 
to a degree. He wants to show people and tell people just how great he is. We know this because he drinks a lot. Um, he basically, whatever he sees, he wants to take for himself. Um, and a big thing is, as we know, is he throws a lot of parties, a lot of feasts, a lot of celebrations. And ultimately, the purpose of his celebrations is to celebrate himself, his kingdom, all that he has. And he wants people to see um, just how great he is. He's very image-based. He's very drawn to beautiful things. And we've seen that again through the story so far. Um, and he's always seeking the affirmation and praise of other people. And in one respect, in a worldly respect, being the king of such a great empire, you know, we can, we can possibly expect no less. So that's the king that we find in this story. The next person we come across, um, a very, very key person in this, in, this, in this narrative, is Esther. And we know Esther is a Jew, um, that she, although she hasn't disclosed that at this stage, we know that she is a Jew. She's an orphan who's been raised by her cousin, so we know that she's got a fierce level of loyalty um, to uh, her, her cousin Mordecai. She's from a low social status, so she doesn't really have any position, anything um, natural for her to, to be giving over to the king, uh, apart from we know that she's, as, as the Bible tells us in the passage here, that she's beautiful, she's lovely to look at, um, and she's a very graceful individual. And these are the things which lead her then to be in the story because, because of her beauty, she's taken into the king's harem um, and because of her loyalty um, to God as a Jew, she's actually placed in possibly one of the greatest positions in the Persian Empire, obviously as queen um, to King Ahasuerus. And she finds favour with the king, um, which is really, really important. As we go through this story, we're going to see that she begins being effectively in a social level a nobody but she then becomes one of the wisest and most influential characters <coughs> in the empire of course then we come to um, Mordecai who we know from our narrative so far that he is a faithful Jew that we know that he's got himself into a lot of bother um, because he's, he's faithful to God he's refusing to bow down to Haman he's refusing to acknowledge somebody to be greater than God himself um, and that does get him into a little bit of a pickle but what it does tell us again is that, it, that, that his faithfulness is something which is visible, is tangible. People can see that. He's a good person of influence in this story. Um, and finally, which you can possibly look at the villain of the story. If you're looking at this as being a bit of a, bit of a story like that, you know, the villain, uh, Haman. So we know that Haman is someone, again, who's very similar to King Ahasuerus. Um, gets elevated, gets put in a position of authority in the empire as, as the chief official. Um, and there's another person who loves his own honour, loves to show people how great he is. Um, and in line with that, he also, and, and, and we may know this, or from reading this story, what we'll find is he has a genuine hate and disdain for Mordecai um, and for the Jewish people in line of that. Why? Purely because they're not giving him the affirmation that he wants. Mordecai's refusal to acknowledge him and exalt him leaves a really bitter taste in his mouth to the point where we see then these plans um, to annihilate and eradicate the Jewish people completely. And ultimately that, that love for himself will become his, his downfall. So that's kind of a background to those characters which I think is really, really important for us to grasp because that's going to really help us as we go through and continue. Um, but again, as Neil shared a few times and, and a few people will know from reading Esther, there's a real curiosity to this book, something which I've really uh, got a deeper grasp of over the last uh, few weeks, 
is that we know that God's name is never mentioned. Um, that we don't read about God, we don't hear his name spoken of, um, yet we should know from reading it so far that we just see it, him, him littered through the whole thing. But what this does really, really well, and what it really helps us, and what the, the writer of this book has really helped us to do, is really look deeply and intentionally for God. It's almost like we've received an invitation to really find how God is moving in the lives of his people in this time and I believe that as well is, is, is an intentional thing you know we can we can often read passages of the Bible and gloss over God um, in the midst of that story where here because he's not mentioned by name we have to look deeper we have to find where he is and of course what we will see is the sovereignty of God and the purposes of God kind of all the way stamped throughout um, so with that in mind, that is really where the story takes us. So what I want you to do now, because I've done a lot of work so far, uh, I want you to kind of open the Bible, turn to chapter one. Obviously, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but I want to summarise the story again so far, just kind of to pick us up to speed before we read chapter five uh, and chapter six. So, so the story so far takes us to a feast. Chapter one, what we see is we see King Ahasuerus um, and all his officials puts on a staggering half a year feast effectively. So the first feast that he puts on lasts 180 days uh, and again the, 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 the purpose of this is to show the empire, show his chief officials, show everybody that matters in the Persian Empire that he is king, that he is glorious, that he's got splendour, majesty and that he is um, worthy uh, of their affirmation of their praise um, and that is the purpose of why he's doing this after that half year feast what he then decides to do is, is have a second feast for the city uh, which lasted seven days uh, and this was now, now to <coughs> extend that glory to the whole city so that everybody else could kind of be welcomed in uh, and, and again when you read through the passage what you see is it spares no expense everything that he has to offer um, the drink, the food this is probably not as important to some, but it's just not with the furniture, there's gold uh, furniture there, there's robes, there's everything uh, that he can possibly display and show people um, that he is king, that he is great, and it's all there for everyone to see. And of course, what we see, uh, and how it kind of un unfolds, is that when he's satisfied with this feast, what does he decide to do? He wants to parade his wife. He wants to bring Queen Vashti in, so basically, again, because of his image, um, because of his desire for beauty and to be loved, he wants to show everybody the most beautiful woman in the empire is my queen. And we know this unravels quite quickly in chapter one because we know that Queen Vashti is not keen on this and she actually refuses his order. He obviously was sitting there thinking, this is great, she's going to be here any moment, and he gets the message she's not coming. And what's his res uh, response? Like any... Uh, self-centered, self-loving individual when they don't get their own way, their natural response is anger, it's um, to be uh, annoyed, to be how dare she do this, how dare she reject my request. And to put it bluntly, uh, Queen Vashti's outcome for this act uh, is to be removed and replaced as queen. Um, immediately so what we have here is and not only that but this quite causes quite a stir with uh, the officials in the empire and again from that they're really worried well because queen vashti has rejected your uh, plea and your decree king 
all the women in, in, in the kingdom will do that so quickly. Uh, every, every lady in the Persian Empire is, is squashed in terms of this possible desire uh, to, to follow Vashti's example um, and a decree is passed in every home in Persia in the mm. empire that the men are the rulers, the men are the authority, which pleases, I'm sure, every man in the kingdom, um, Haman particularly and the officials. And again, just really feeds into this domineering uh, and self, uh, self-loving, self-seeking kingdom that is in place. But then in chapter two, what do we, who are we introduced to into Esther? And we see Esther's different. We see that actually she doesn't pursue um, the king, but because of her beauty, and again, Neil uh, shared with us, didn't he, in, in, in this a few weeks ago, that because of her, she's an attractive lady, she's a virgin, she's young, that she's chosen and brought into the harem and, and the process there, or what that would have gone through. Again, we, we heard horrendous things of the reality of what it would have been like for Esther and the rest of the ladies at that time. Um, but what happens here, the key part of this, is that Esther finds favour with the king. He, she is chosen as his new queen. Um, again, we know that she's concealing her identity as a Jew uh, on one level because she's told to by Mordecai. But again, seeing God's providence through this story, uh, we see that uh, you know that the time for that revealing wasn't to be now. Uh, and what we see here is we see that the king becomes infatuated with Esther, with her beauty. Uh, again, which is the way she carries herself, and he is delighted to make her. Queen, but as, as chapter two falls through, we also get introduced to uh, another another character called Mordecai, who we know is uh, Esther's cousin. Now he overhears two of the royal guards plotting to kill the king, um, informs Esther, and again, this is really important. This part of the story for us in chapter five and six is, is is pivotal. That because he has overheard this and informed Esther, who informs the king, um, Mord- uh, Mordecai is then. Although he's not honoured immediately, um, the king wants to acknowledge uh, Mordecai's role in this. Um, and Mordecai as well gains initial favour with the king. Really important, we'll come back to that later on. Okay, rushing through this, moving through, we hear, uh, we're introduced to another character, uh, the baddie in the story, uh, called Haman. And again, fascinating is that we hear that Haman was from the line of uh, the Agagites, who shouldn't have been around because God um, decreed and told King Saul to wipe out there, wipe them out in battle. He didn't, he saved uh, one, and from that, that line continued. And now you have that, again, you can see it as irony or, or almost like as, a, as a, a backfire plan here, where because that wasn't followed through, this one man wants to wipe out the whole of, of the Jewish people. Um, but again, that's really key as you come to that in chapter uh, five and chapter six. Um, but he, again, we've heard this, he's so full of himself, so full of his own honor. Um, but again, is, is King Ahasuerus his man, is his boy, he wants to be exalted and actually um, the king demands that everybody has to bow down and honour Haman. So when Haman walks past you, you get on your knees um, or you stand if you're on your knees and you exalt him. And of course we know that because Mordecai refuses in chapter 3, um, you see that reaction straight away. You see Mordecai refuses, what does Haman do? He's filled with rage. Um, and not only does he want to kill Mordecai, but he, he reaches from that to want to wipe out the whole of the Jewish people from the earth. And that gives us a little insight into the kind of man that Haman was. Um, and again, we see God's providence in that again, don't we? In that it takes, it takes almost a year for this to come to pass. Um, by which point, you know, we, we, as Neil shared with us that t- uh, a few weeks ago, we've got a year of waiting. 
um, for this to take place, and that is enough time then for Esther to you know to, to be in position and to to establish a, a place in the Persian Empire as queen. But we move on to chapter four, and what we see is things are looking quite desperate for the Jews, for the Jewish people, because their reality is death. Not only has um, Haman decided that he wants all Jews to be killed, but the king has sealed that with his ring. And that, what that would look like is that then that's binding, that's happening, that's is something which is going to take place. The reality for the Jewish people is death, and that leads to what great mourning. So we read in chapter four of Mordecai's response is to is to mourn and and be in sackcloth and ashes and really grieve this situation. Um, of course, Esther hears of this, and there's a bit of a bit of a back and forth and eventually what what comes to pass is that Mordecai is imploring Esther to intervene to speak on behalf of the Jewish people and you get these um, kind of key for me quite key verses don't you so in chapter 4 verse 14 um, Mordecai says this doesn't he and who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this and we see don't we actually at this point here how even though Esther has concealed identity that has probably been a, a horrendous initial experience for her, that I would start to see, ah, okay, and, and you can see God's path and God's plan and God's movement in this situation. And again here, which is a real challenge for us here at the end of chapter four, doesn't it? Because if you look at it, Esther has been asked to go somewhere where she's not allowed to go into the presence of the king unannounced, uninvited. And her response is this in verse 16, I will go to the king even though it is, it is against the law, and if I, pe- I perish, I perish. And there's that real desire to, to stand up, to be courageous, to be brave, um, and to really intercede for, for her people, for, for God's people. And that kind of brings us now, so we get to the point now, and, and if you're watching, um, if you're a bit of a Netflix buff, like most people are these days, aren't they, to be fair? Um, this is the kind of example where you've just watched an episode and it's like, <gasps> cliffhanger, you have to watch the next one. So it's like 12, you'll know this. It's like 1 p, one a.m., 12 p.m., whatever it might be, 12 a.m., sorry. Um, and you're like, oh, I've just got to watch the next bit, even the start of it, which always ends up in another four or five episodes, isn't it? Um, but this is where we get to here. This is serious stuff. Esther is about to enter an environment where she is, you know, death is a real probability for her. Um, and everyone's on a knife edge. This is basically where we get to. Um, and we come to chapter five and chapter six. Um, so what I'm going to do is read through the, the chapter, 14 verses, and then I'm going to kind of break it down a little bit and then read through six as well. Um, okay, so it says this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne in, inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter and the king said to her what is it Queen Esther what is your request that it shall be given you even to the even to the half of my kingdom and Esther said if it please the king let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I prepared for the king and the king said bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, 
if I have found favour in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has asked. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with, with the king to the feast. She prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth noting to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows of fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully and with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. So when I read in this, you're like on a knife edge, and it's actually quite an anticlimax, isn't it? Because Esther walks in there, and what's the response of um, King Ahasuerus? He's pleased to see her. She receives favour. Um, and again, this is a real testament to the sovereignty and the grace of God, that even though some would have been killed there and then, Esther, his queen, receives favour, and he is pleased to see her and this may be because we read through that chapter that she's you know again it could be her beauty that he's attracted to the sight of her it could be because she's really put an effort in because she had her royal robes on or as we as i'm sure we can know that actually there was more likely to have been another reason and what we see here again in chapter five is not only does esther go in um he actually says to her oh what i will grant you any request what do you want basically signs an open checkbook to her saying Whatever you, whatever you want, Esther, is yours. And here's a real expectation maybe from, from, from people that she's going to ask for um, half of his kingdom. She's going to ask for something for her that benefits her. And again, what we see here is her humility and her patience. Because we don't even see her go jump straight in, do we, to, to request that the Jews are saved. But she basically wants the, uh, the king and Haman to join her in a banquet that she's going to put on. Again, quite revealing. Um, and again, as we read through that chapter, what we pick up here is a real vendetta beginning. We see Haman um, is really, really pleased. He, he leaves that, that invitation from Esther, almost kicking his heels, going home, can't wait um, to tell his family of this invitation to this banquet. He's on a real high. What happens? He catches a glimpse of Mordecai, who doesn't rise to greet him and he's filled with anger again he's filled with rage he's filled with that hatred that he has towards Mordecai and subsequently the Jewish people and we see how that really changes his perception of, of the experience that he's had and we see this didn't we um, basically as we read that chapter that it was great I saw Mordecai and I was unhappy again but as soon as his wife is telling him of what he can do build the gallows and kill Mordecai what do we see and this is really significant <coughs> He goes to bed happy. He's happy. He sleeps wonderfully and peacefully that evening because he knows in the morning he's going to rush off to the king um, and, and share his plan to publicly execute Mordecai and in, in turn kill the uh, Jewish people. 
And you kind of see that, you see, so we, within this chapter, there's a roller coaster of emotion. You've got Esther's favor with the king. We've got this feast that's going to happen. You've got, a, you, know, you, you see their responsive delight to what's happened, a real nice picture. And it turns really sour really quickly uh, with Mordecai um, being the subject of Haman's hate again. And again, the Jews um, not having that reprieve at this time, but uh, still facing the reality of, of death. So let's move on. Uh, it's chapter 6, I'm going to read through this and then we'll unpack a couple of things. So chapter 6 says, On that night the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of uh, memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honour or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honour, let the royal robes be brought, uh, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be uh, handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honour, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So again here, this is possibly um, of this book of Esther, the, the, the tipping point. It's the most significant uh, opening to a chapter uh, of which the kind of future of God's people hinge because in chapter 5 we've just seen what um, Haman go to sleep peacefully in a happy state because of what he was planned to do in the morning but how do we begin this chapter in verse 1 we read that night the king could not sleep and because the king could not sleep what does he do he is brought um, people to come and read to him and he's reminded of Mordecai's faithfulness to him and Mordecai's good good deed by by saving him now you know and again this is another example of where or the greatest example of where we see god's providence god's faithfulness in here because we know if you're if we're god's people if we're if we're, if we're believers in god and, and believers in jesus we know that god is sovereign that god is in control of, of all things but to the to the outside eye of this you could say well if king Ahasuerus has slept peacefully um and, and woke up that morning then he would have granted Mordecai to be hanged 
and for all of the Jewish people to be annihilated. Which is, which is, let's not lose sight of that, because without the Jewish line, there's no Jesus. So that's really significant as we see this. So in terms of God's providence, God's sovereignty, this is a pivotal moment. And what we see here, isn't it, that because Ashkenaz as you, as you wear, is, is reminded of Mordecai's um, kindness to him in hearing and reporting, ultimately saving his life, he asked the question, um, what's been done to honour and recognise what Mordecai's done? Well, nothing's been done. And I'm sure as we're reading through that passage, the irony of this was not lost on any, anybody. Um, but you read here, the very man who was coming to tell the king of uh, his plans to hang and kill Mordecai and the Jewish people was the one who was present and the one who was called in and the one who was actually tasked with exalting and honouring Mordecai. And you see this is just, I don't know, for me, you read this through and you know you can't help but laugh you can't help but see our God who is who is the creator of all things who is the most creative uh, being that has ever existed and we just see his his humor here his his irony of of the man who was trying to wipe out his people uh, God's people was actually the one who was made to honor and exalt them in this uh, and again we just we're pointed to the person of Haman that he's standing there almost creating this situation, thinking it's for him. The best robe, the king's robes, the king's horses, everything that is is the greatest in the kingdom must be given to this man, almost waiting to be handed it to him, and he was, but to be given to Mordecai as well. Uh, and again, we just see the providence of God, and where we see this um, change is that we go from the destiny of God's people, the destiny of the Jewish people, which was literally a breath away from annihilation to now being pardoned actually being well, at this point heading to a good situation a good position of being being saved um and i hope to come back to what we started at the beginning of this chapter uh, this, this sermon of looking closely at god's presence looking closely at how god moves uh, in the book of esther hopefully we can see his providence, his sovereignty is stamped all through this. And what I want to do in closing um, is just pick out three aspects of God's character um, and how we see this played out in the lives of Esther, of Mordecai and of the Jewish people. So firstly, we see God's protection. So quite clearly we should see here, don't we, that in Esther we see that she, her presence in, her, her presence in the king's presence was a criminal offence. So she really should have been executed, but for the favour of the king. So she found favour with the king. Um, so we're talking about a short-tempered, narcissistic, um, angry individual who could have executed anyone in, in, a, in a bad mood. And yet, yet Esther, knowingly that she could die and be willing to do that for the sake of um, the Jewish people, immediately finds favour. And not only does she find favour, but she finds the ability to ask for anything to be requested to her um it's unbelievable we just the way we see god's protection of esther in this moment the physical protection the protection for his people through this um and not only that she didn't even you know, she, she made him wait so so when when the king asked anything would be granted to you she, she almost stalled him a bit didn't she she delayed that and said rather than go straight in i want you to save the jewish people from from what is going to happen to them it was like come to another feast, come to another banquet, um, probably playing on his, on his ego a little bit there. 
um, because we know how much he loves he loves to celebrate himself in feasts and things like that. But again, that protection, that protective hand over Esther is is so tangible, so visible as we see that. We see this again in the life of Mordecai, don't we? God's protection over Mordecai, we know quite clearly that his life was hanging by a thread um, in the sense that Haman was so keen, so earnest to have him publicly executed and the rest of God's people. And we see there, as we, as, we look, as we touched on there, not only was he saved physically, but he was exalted, he was honoured, he was recognised for what he had done for the king. Um, and again, God's hand of protection, where the king had previously signed uh, Mordecai's death sentence effectively um, by handing out to all, letters to all the provinces to, to go and kill all Jewish people, was now saving him and was exalting him. Um, Again, just to see the protection, the physical protection of God, of Mordecai's life there is so tangible. And finally, again, you see, don't we, you see um, the Jewish people, that because their faithfulness to God um, and their honouring of God, that they were honoured, they benefited from the favour that Esther and Mordecai received. Uh, and we'll see that without any, any spoilers. Uh, we'll see that in, in the next couple of weeks um, but again, just that protection. And I think it's, 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 it's for us, isn't it, to ask ourselves where we see God's protection in our life. We know that God moves for his people. But this is the interesting thing because you can read that and think, oh, wow, the way that God intervened physically uh, in miraculous ways for their protection. Now, we know that this is, this is a narrative that we're, we're, not, you know, we're not promised that physical protection, if that makes sense. But we can see as believers, as people who put their faith in Jesus, that we see the faithfulness of God. We see the hand of God moving in the lives of Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people based on his promises um, that we, st- we, 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 we can look at this and just be in awe of the way that God is moving. And, and, and what we are promised as God's people, isn't it? That by faith in Jesus, that we are protected because what do we have? A seal of our salvation in the spirit. And again, end of chapter four shows that Esther was willing to die for God's people, for God. Um, that her, her own protection, her own safety wasn't something in, uh, of priority to her. And yet, and yet she knows that to be killed in this instance would mean actually safety with God anyway for eternity. And that's something which we have as God's people, um, that whether or not we have situations that we go through, we're not promised an easy life, a comfortable life, but what we are promised as God's people is that ultimate protection of soul, protection of spirit, protection of that when we pass through this life that we'll be with God for eternity. Um, and again, something which is so tangible and evident for us. Secondly, what do we see here in this passage, this story? We see God's providence. Okay, so God's sovereignty, God's hand of control on this situation. So again, in Esther's life, what do we see? We see the fact that... Um, Esther herself was placed in position to be queen. It's God's providence. She didn't choose it. She didn't work hard for it. She was just put in a position through her beauty, through her loyalty to Mordecai, and she was made queen. And what we see that in chapter one and chapter two, because I know people have done it, because I did it as well, you're like, oh, why did, why did it, we're judging Esther for not telling everyone she was a Jew. We're thinking, oh my word, the way she became queen was that she should have resisted the king. But actually, we see that going through these experiences has led to her being in a position where she can actually um, save God's people. 
um, which again, that providence, the hand of God in that moment was to place her in that situation is, is tangible here for us to see. Um, she not only would she be queen, but she also received that direct route to the king, didn't we? So had genuinely believed, had any other uh, female entered the presence of the king, then we'd be looking at a completely different story. But Esther herself, because she had favour with King Ahasuerus, that actually she was, she was spared of execution um, and she was actually given or granted requests for anything that she wanted, which again just shows God's providential hand of, of this moment to save his people. Um, this identity that Esther had as a Jew not yet being um, displayed or exposed at this point actually was God's providence. It was God's um, sovereignty, it was God's control and placing Esther in a position where he wanted her to be. Again, we see this, don't we? So Mordecai, so Mordecai, um, again, we've seen was, was on a death sentence and yet King Ahasuerus, who, who we know what, is a heavy drinker, a socialite, um, where it's hard to show his worth, he parted a lot. On that night, he couldn't sleep. So you think about it, if you do all those things, you're worn out, what do you want to do the first thing? Is you want to hit that pillow, you want to sleep for as long as you can. Um, and yet, for some reason, on that night, he couldn't sleep. He was, he was sleepless, he was restless. And again, we just see here that in line of that, in light of that, uh, Mordecai is... is exalted he's honored he's the king's reminded of what Mordecai has done and again I hope I really hope we can see the providential hand of God in this situation um, that God is 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 present in these events the events that have saved not only Mordecai and Esther but the Jewish people again and Mordecai you know being the one character that we see from the Jews that is is very is almost like a leader in that respect is present he's standing firm and refusing to honour man, refusing to bow down uh, through his faithfulness to God. And, and, and this again, this is interesting, isn't it? Because the Jewish people, there, would have, there must have been Jewish people in, in, this, in this community that were scared, that were pe- terrified, that believed that the king was going to annihilate them. But there must have also been Jewish people who believed God's promises, that actually probably felt a state of calm knowing just like um, when Abraham was asked um, to kill his only son. I'm willing to do it because I know that if I do this, God will provide another way. So there's that kind of state of that belief and you've got this kind of um, two camps going on within the Jewish people. Um, But again, the promises that God gives in Genesis 12 and in 15, uh, verse 5, where he promises Abraham that his descendants will be like this, as numerous as the stars in the sky. There's people that would have remembered that and probably been quite peaceful and quite calm regarding that. And I think that's where Mordecai did, because Mordecai, we know, said these words, didn't he, in chapter 4, verse 14 of Esther, saying this to Esther, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. So again, there's that, that firm belief in, in God's promises. So we see, and I wonder again, as, as we come to the close now, where do you see God's providence in your life? And I think if we're honest, we see it everywhere. Um, like in this passage, we see God's hand at work in our lives, um, in this church, in our salvation, in our relationships, in everything that we have, we see um, God's providential hand. And I wonder then, if we believe that, what is our response to this world we live in, to our circumstances? Are we fearful? Are we anxious? Are we doubtful possibly at times? 
Or do we believe God? Do we trust him? Are we brave? Are we being courageous and taking risks uh, for the gospel? And finally, the last thing uh, before we close is we want to see how God's purposes are shown here. Um, and again, clearly here, don't we? And again, without going into, into next week's passage, we see God using Esther for his purposes. We see God using Mordecai to bring around salvation for his people, deliverance for his people, their faith in God, who he is and what he has done previously and what he's promised enables them to be, be brave and be courageous in the face of death um, as well. And I like that relationship between Mordecai and, and Esther. Um, you almost feel like Mordecai as her cousin, but guardian, as we know from the beginning of this book, almost coaching her through this, you know, forbidding her to reveal her identity, um, reminding her that you're in a position of, of power here, of influence. You need to speak on behalf of God's people. Yet if you don't, God will find a way, that kind of real way that God uses these people for his purposes. And of course, we know, again, um, how God how does this for his line, for his people. And again, this is, this is where I think we look, don't we, as individuals, whether we're believers or we're not, we look at what is, what is the purposes of our life. Um, was reading, uh, yeah, this is, this is too, might not believe this, but was reading the Westminster Shorter Catechism the other day. You love this, Johnny. Um, and you read the first, what is it? What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man in this respect? Um, I'm sure you can, you can relate it in your head. What is the, the, the why we exist? What, what we exist for is to glorify God and to enjoy him. And I think when we're Christians, when, when, we, when we look at that, when we experience that, it really gives us a perspective. What I've been really challenged on, looking at this in more detail, as being that just as you have to look really deeply uh, in this book to see God's hand, to see God moving, I think it, it challenges me, I'm sure it will challenge each of us to look, you know, when we go through, perhaps not impending death and execution, but just trials, tribulations, things which are tough, whether it's, uh, parenting, whether it's just physical health, whether it's job insecurity or stress or pressure, whatever it might be. How hard are we looking to see God's hand in that situation? How hard are, 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 we, are we fearful? Are we doubting? Are we stressed? Are we getting to a point of almost forgetting God and his promises? Or are we taking that time to look and to see God's handprint over our life? The key thing what I take from this, going back again to chapter 6 and verse 1, is looking at um, God's redemptive plan for his people. We know, uh, and let's just lead us into our time together now, that we know um, that God is a, is a God who is meticulous in his plan, he's providential, and we know that actually, just like uh, in this time, his plan all along was to elevate Esther to a position of queen, to give her the courage, to give her a position um, to speak on behalf of God's people for Mordecai as well to, to overhear that conversation to get him into a position of favour with the king we know that this wasn't a chance encounter it wasn't a coincidental moment this was God moving uh, amongst the history of his people and we see that in Jesus we see that actually Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection uh, and ascension to be with God to save his people was not reactionary, was not plan B, was not a response out of fear to what humanity was, was doing or what Satan was doing. It was right from the beginning of time, 
was God's plan for redemption for his people. And I think that's something which, which fills me with hope, fills me with praise and joy to know that this morning, my presence here this morning um, was God's redemptive plan for my life. And if you know Jesus this morning, then that's, that's your joy as well. That's your truth. Um, but if you don't know Jesus this morning, I do believe that, that your presence here is, is planned. It is providential. It is God's redemptive plan for you is to is to tell you to remind you to expose you to the truth of who his son is we know if we're christians that the lord jesus lived a perfect life he died a death on the cross which we deserve for our sin he took upon the sin of the world upon him we see don't we that ultimately even though he was crushed by our sin he was the one on the cross crushing and stamping and destroying and killing sin and death in the process because we know that not only did he die but three days later he was risen to life again he was amongst his people and he was um ascending to be with his father and that's the what i want to leave us with this morning do we know that do we believe that do we trust that if you're sitting here and you're a christian do you get joy from that is that something which you remind yourself each day and you can see your life from a perspective of Jesus, who he is and what he has done? And if you don't know that this morning, um, then we have a physical reminder, which we're going to go into now. We're going to be reminded this morning again through taking this bread and this juice or wine that actually this is, this is real. This is, this is shed blood. This is broken body. This is... Uh, physical pain and death that Jesus experienced again not like King Ajuerus for his own glory uh, or, or to show people how great but for our good um, that, he, that in, in doing this that we get to enter into a relationship with him with one another and ultimately not just have salvation um, for this life and protection for this life but ultimately we get to be with him for all eternity so I'm going to pray uh, and then what I'd like you to do as well in um, where you get uncomfortable now is uh, in, in, in twos maybe or threes just pray for the person next to you and, and, and pray that God will show you more of his providence in your life or what he, where he's brought you to where he's moving you toward and thank him and praise him um, and ask him what, what you can do this week uh, the rest of this month to really live for him to to respond rightly to what he has done for you um so let me pray father in heaven we just thank you for all that you are thank you for the fact that you are a god who is good a god who is active who's present a god who when we look at this story here uh and we can't help but just see you all throughout it the way that you work in the lives of people to bring around your purposes to bring around your glory and we praise you for this the fact that you moved at this time, the fact that Esther and Mordecai were courageous uh, and found, found favour with the king, that we are here, that we are participating in the death and resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that that is not chance or coincidental. We know that is your perfect and sovereign plan. So as we take of this bread and this wine, uh, spirit just remind us and move us towards um, what it, what it took for Jesus to die. Yes, it was, it was the plan of the Lord and Jesus was obedient, but it took, it took courage, it took bravery, it took obedience, it took holiness, um, it took love for us and for his Father. 
to do this. And I just pray it really fill us with praise, fill us with joy and, and help us move out of this place today uh, with a renewed vigour to, to tell people about Jesus and to look back on, on our lives and even in, in the moments of difficult circumstances and to see how you are moving, how you are present, how you are keeping and protecting us as your people. So Father, we love you. We love Jesus for who he is and what he has done. As we remember now his broken body and his shed blood, I just pray again that you just really help us to, to see this with fresh eyes, with a fresh heart, to hear with fresh ears of what you have done for us. Um, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So if you pray um, with the people around you, just thanking God and, and asking him to show you, uh, if, if needs be, where, where he is present in your life. And then when you are ready, come and take this and we'll sing. <laughs>